Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World. Episode 26, The Last Kings of Babylon. In the wake of the Battle of the Hollis in 585 BC, the ancient Near East had entered a state not witnessed since the Late Bronze Age, a stable balance of powerful empires. The Hittites, Elamites, and Assyrians had all been lost to history, but two other late Bronze Age states, Egypt and Babylonia, still held sway over vast territories and preserved traditions stretching back to the very beginnings of human civilization. To these ancient powers had been added the Iron Age empires of the Lydians and Medes, each only decades old, and both linked, by ties of blood, with the ruling Chaldean dynasty of Babylon. The most powerful of these kings was likely Nebuchadnezzar II, and, had he been a Syrian, the region would have likely convulsed under a series of fresh wars of expansion and conquest. But the Chaldean king had different aims, and after subduing Levantine vassals and one opportunistic attempt to gain control over Egypt, satisfied himself with reshaping the territories he already governed. In fact, even this was a bit of an overstatement. The territories of northern Mesopotamia, the former Assyrian heartland, were of little interest to Nebuchadnezzar, and were treated with an imperial disdain that left them backwards and impoverished throughout the remainder of his rule. For the Chaldean king, there was only one region deserving of his care and devotion, the ancient southern territories of Babylonia. Call it Sumer or Sealand, this was the region that the Chaldean tribes had entered and made their new home during the turmoil of the Bronze Age collapse. Even more than that, this was the birthplace of civilization, home to the only cities, including ancient Eridu, to have survived from before the Great Flood. But while Eridu may have been older, few other Mesopotamian cities could match the pedigree of Nebuchadnezzar's capital of Babylon. Founded by Sargon of Akkad, and home to both the chief Babylonian god Marduk and the ancient Amorite king and lawgiver Hammurabi. When Babylon had been visited by the destruction of Sennacherib a century before, the Assyrian king had boasted of obliterating the city. But that was merely imperial posturing. A city with foundations sunk so deeply into the Mesopotamian soil could never be entirely destroyed. 
For the Chaldean kings, rebuilding upon the original foundations was not merely a symbolic gesture, but a literal obligation. After all, Babylon had been sited at the very center of the universe, and to alter its sacred geometry by even a millimeter would be to invite disaster and ruin. However, once the foundations had been properly established, there was no perceived impiety in reaching for the heavens. This Nebuchadnezzar did in grand style, through the construction of his most famous and awe-inspiring monument, the giant ziggurat called Etemenaki, or House of the Frontier Between Heaven and Earth. Rising some 90 meters high from the center of the city, and serving as inspiration for the biblical Tower of Babel, the structure consisted of six stages surmounted by a large temple. No trace remains of it today due to a calamity of fate and timing. Intending to make Babylon his imperial capital, the later Macedonian conqueror, Alexander the Great, dismantled the ziggurat in preparation for its eventual reconstruction, but died before the project could be begun. Nearby, and similar in prominence and splendor, stood the Esagila, earthly abode of the city god Marduk. Extending outward from this sacred core, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon covered more than three square miles. Its triangular outer wall was five miles long, with enough room on top for a four-horse chariot team to complete a turn. Three further sets of defensive walls enclosed the rectangular inner city. The Euphrates flowed through Babylon, dividing the city into two halves spanned by a decorative stone bridge. Among the city's other monuments were the 18-meter-high Ishtar Gate, adorned with bulls, dragons, lions, and kingly inscriptions, and the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, built by Nebuchadnezzar for his queen, Amidas, to remind her of her Median homeland. Displaying remarkable technology for the era, the gardens used screw pumps to raise water to high points from which streams and cascades poured down through lush greenery. Nebuchadnezzar also spared no expense in completing the royal palace begun by his father, adorning it with cedar wood, bronze, gold, silver, and precious stones. Nebuchadnezzar's building activity turned Babylon into the largest and most magnificent city of the ancient world, but the capital wasn't alone in his attentions. The Chaldean king rebuilt all of Babylonia's major cities and temples on a lavish scale. He's also credited with restoring the Lake of Sippar, opening a port on the Persian Gulf, and building a wall stretching from the Tigris to the Euphrates to protect the country against any further invasion from the north. Like the Assyrians before him, Nebuchadnezzar used plundered wealth and an enormous captive labor force to carry out all these projects. Unlike the Assyrians, the Chaldeans left neither detailed military accounts nor records on how they administered their vast empire. Existing evidence implies that their rule was similar to their predecessors, perhaps only differing in its neglect of territories outside the wealthy Babylonian core. Like the Assyrians, the Neo-Babylonian Empire was held together by force, often ruthlessly applied, and relied on the exceptional qualities of one man, the king. Actually, for all their history, culture, and sophistication, it's a bit surprising how little the nature of Mesopotamian rule had changed over the ages. 
while they now acted upon a much larger stage. Near Eastern kings were still, at their heart, little more than glorified Lugals or Enses of Sumer. Big men who won battles and were granted perpetual kingship as a reward. If a particular ruler was just or kind to his people, great, but that was never really a factor in his kingship. Kings were divinely appointed and ruled under the blessings of their patron deity. If they chose to heap misery on their people, it was pretty much equivalent to an act of nature or the will of God. The topic of what form of government would be of maximum benefit to the people never really arose in the Near East, as it had so recently and so forcefully in the West. It was perhaps inevitable that these two irreconcilable political strains would eventually require settlement on the battlefield. Nebuchadnezzar II, warrior, builder, and second Chaldean king of Babylon, died in 562 BC, at the age of 72. Together, he and his father Nabopolassar had ruled for over 60 years, first over a great state, then, with a serious fall, over a great empire. They'd used their time in power to restore Babylon to its ancient role of capital city of the Near East, and to found what they hoped would be a stable ruling dynasty to guide Mesopotamia over the centuries to come. In reality, the Chaldeans had a mere two decades of power left, and few of those years would be stable ones. The Neo-Babylonian decline began once Nebuchadnezzar's son and heir Amel Marduk, or Man of Marduk, ascended the throne. In an effort to step out from his father's long shadow, Amel Marduk quickly set himself to overturning many of Nebuchadnezzar's policies. His most symbolic act in this regard was to pardon and release the Judean king Jeconiah after 37 years in captivity. The Babylonian historian Berossus, writing almost 300 years later, characterized the rule of Amel Marduk as both outrageous and lawless. When he was assassinated in 560 BC by his brother-in-law Nergalshar Usur, it didn't seem to ruffle too many feathers in the capital. Nergalshar Usur, or Nergal Preserved the King, was a prominent Babylonian businessman whom Nebuchadnezzar had entrusted with both official state functions and, more importantly, his daughter's hand in marriage. This family connection allowed him to convert the assassination into an usurpation and seize power in Babylon. As king, Nergalshar Usur left a number of inscriptions documenting temple restorations and other public works, testifying to a period of relative stability. He's also recorded as waging a victorious military campaign against Apuashu, a minor king of western Cilicia who'd threatened Babylon's eastern Cilician holdings. Four years into his reign, Nergalshar Usur died and was succeeded to the throne by his son. A strong contender for most ironically named king of all time, Labashi Marduk, or O oh Marduk, May I Not Be Destroyed, was totally destroyed, only nine months into his reign, falling victim to yet another violent palace coup. Later sources noted that the young king, barely a boy, had proven himself unable to exercise authority and had not learned how to behave. Regardless of the justification, the conspirators decided to break with the Chaldean line of Nabopolassar. 
Instead, they placed on the throne one of the most unusual figures to ever wield Near Eastern power. And, though they had no way of knowing it, the man who had claimed the title of Last King of Babylon. Nabu Naid, or Nabu Be Praised, better known as Nabonidus, was the son of a non-royal Babylonian noble named Nabu Balasu Ikbi, and a high priestess of the moon god Sin, named Ada Gupi. His ethnic origins are unknown, and it's possible that he may have been a Syrian. In late Middle Age, by the time of his ascension, Nabonidus had held important administrative functions under both Nebuchadnezzar and Nergalshar Usur. With this background, it's highly possible that the coup plotters felt him to be a traditional, moderate, and stabilizing force. Spoiler alert, Nabonidus would not prove to be a traditional, moderate, and stabilizing force. The new king was enormously fond of his mother, and shared her devotion to the Babylonian moon god Sin. The problem started when Nabonidus began to praise Sin at the expense of the chief Babylonian god Marduk in some of his royal inscriptions. He also began to lavish special royal attention on Sin's cult centers throughout Mesopotamia. In the ancient Babylonian city of Ur, Nabonidus rebuilt the ziggurat and temple dedicated to Sin, and installed his own daughter, and Nagaldi Nana, as high priestess, reviving a royal tradition first begun under Sargon the Great, but abandoned centuries before. The northern city of Haran, where the Neo-Assyrians had made their final stand, was both Nabonidus's birthplace and home to another major cult center of Sin, where his mother served. Sin's temple in Haran, the El Hulhul, had been destroyed by the Medes during their initial assault, and left neglected over the decades that followed. Above all, Nabonidus wanted to restore the temple to its former glory, something he could never do as long as the Medes continued to occupy the city. The king's overriding obsession with this goal would prove to have ominous repercussions. Despite his devotions, and given the violent end of his predecessor, Nabonidus also understood the need to manage public perception, at least among the priesthood and other traditional Babylonian power centers. For this reason, he also gave attention to the Esagila, the temple of Marduk in Babylon. When engaging in such restoration efforts, Nabonidus followed the conservative tradition of Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar, by making sure to first locate the original foundation before any building activities were begun. In documenting his reconstruction of the Temple of Ishtar at Akkad, destroyed centuries before during the reign of the Akkadian king Naram-Sin, Nabonidus claimed that his brickwork stood directly above the original foundation, not allowing those foundations to protrude by one finger's breadth, nor allowing them to recede by one finger's breadth. He also noted that previous Mesopotamian kings, including Kurigalzu of the Kassites, Esarhaddon and Ashurbanipal of Assyria, and even Nebuchadnezzar II, had searched for the temple's foundation in vain. Only he, Nabonidus, had persevered until their discovery. Like his Chaldean predecessors, and perhaps most of all like the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, Nabonidus was fixated on the preservation of the past. Locating foundations also permitted the king to conduct excavations that often uncovered objects from the period of original construction. 
Ancient tablets, statues, and other finds were typically read, copied, or repaired before being restored to their original location. Some notable finds were transported to private museums in the royal palace or other prominent sites, where their anachronistic presence often served to confuse modern archaeologists. Nabonidus also set his scribes to recopy a number of ancient chronicles, compile king's lists, and generally continue the ongoing process of cultural preservation. All this activity, particularly his many meticulous excavations, later earned the king the nickname the Royal Archaeologist. As long as Babylonia remained strong, the king was forgiven his eccentricities, and there is little evidence of civil disorder early in his reign. Nabonidus even burnished his military credentials by recruiting additional troops in Syria, then campaigning against the Nabataeans of Edom. While he was never popular among them, Nabonidus even managed to placate the priesthood of Marduk sufficiently to prevent their open opposition. At least until 552 BC, when Nabonidus dropped the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of an atom bomb on the capital. One day, the king announced that he was leaving Babylon and moving to the Tama Oasis in the deserts of northern Arabia where there just happened to be a major cult center of the moon god Sin. What's that? When was he coming back? Well, he wasn't really sure, you know. You can't really put dates on these sorts of things. But hey, it's all going to be cool because he was leaving his son, Belshar Usur, or Bel Preserve the King, better known as Belshazzar, to, you know, keep an eye on Babylonia while he was away. What's that? If I'm gone, I can't preside over the New Year's ceremony, where the statue of Marduk is moved into his temple, which means that the whole year's cycle of religious festivals will be all messed up. Oh, ouch. That sucks. But, oh, wait, I think that's my cab. So keep everything, you know, Babylonian, and I'll see you all down the road. After taking a few weeks to pick their jaws back up off the ground and do Wikipedia searches under Akhenaten, the citizens of Babylon found themselves under the effective governance of Nabonidus' son and co-regent Belshazzar. First and foremost, the departing king had charged Belshazzar with the defense of the capital, a duty he would ably fulfill throughout Nabonidus' long absence. Politically, however, Belshazzar would prove to be his father's son, and would never gain popularity with either the Marduk priesthood or the Babylonian military during his decade of stewardship. So, what the heck was going on? Beneath the surface and behind the scenes, big things, huge things, enormous things. And there's a good chance that Nabonidus' religious retreat had a far more serious and far more urgent objective. For that story, we need to return to a discussion of the other great Near Eastern power of the age, the Medes. The Median king, Astyages, had ascended to the throne in 585 BC, upon the death of his father, Cyaxares. In the wake of the Battle of the Hollis, Astyages had married the Lydian princess, Ariennes, daughter of Aliates, even as his own sister, Amidas, served as Nebuchadnezzar's queen in Babylon. For the first time in history, a single extended family ruled over all of Mesopotamia and Anatolia. But while Nebuchadnezzar and Aliati sat comfortably upon their thrones, Astyages alone was restless. 
Even elevated to the new and glorified status of empire killers, the Medes he ruled over were still, at their core, semi-tribal nomadic warriors whose ambitions seldom reached beyond their next target of opportunity. Hemmed in to the west and south by peace treaties, Astyages led his warriors north and east, into the wilds of Armenia and Azerbaijan. The victories he won there brought glory, but little in the way of plunder, and the Median king started to feel that maybe his royal siblings had the right idea. A capital, a palace, and a steady source of income that didn't have to be earned on horseback. Maybe there was something to be said for that after all. The kingly dreams of Astyages converged in one location, an open field in the Zagros among gently rolling hills that had once served the Median tribes as a common assembly point, or, in their language, Ekbatana. It was here, strategically sited along the Khorasan Highway, that Astyages' forefathers had built the first royal capital of the Medes. Merchants passing east to west and back again along the major trade route were awed by the majesty of Ekbatana. Its palace encircled by seven massive concentric walls of white, black, scarlet, blue, orange, gold, and silver, and with plates of precious metal adorning the innermost battlements. It was decided. Astyages would return to Ekbatana to hold court and rule over his newly won Mesopotamian empire. To some Median tribes, this was distressing news. Many had remained free even during the dark years of the Neo-Assyrian occupation and now feared that their own king's proximity might threaten their long-cherished independence. Their fears were soon borne out, as tribal autonomy was increasingly subordinated to royal authority. And, as in contemporary Babylonia, the new boss began to smell increasingly like the old boss. And still, even within the brightly colored walls of Ekbatana, Astyages' dreams were plagued by darkness. The most disturbing centered on his daughter, Mandane, giving birth to a son who would destroy his empire. Deeply troubled by these visions, Astyages married Mandane off to a minor royal vassal, with a reputation as a quiet and thoughtful prince. His name was Cambyses I of Anshan and his people dwelled in former Elamite lands between the lower Zagros Mountains and the Persian Gulf. Arians, like the Medes, who had entered the Zagros from the north during the Bronze Age collapse, their tribe was variously called the Parsa, Parsua, or Parsuamash, better known to us as the Persians. The founder of the Persian royal line had been a warrior chieftain named Achaemenes, who'd likely fought against Sennacherib, alongside the Chaldean coalition, in the 691 BC Battle of Halule. Sometime after its destruction by Ashurbanipal in 639 BC, Achaemenes' son Taespes had seized the ancient Elamite capital of Anshan for use as the first Persian capital. Taespes' sons, Cyrus I and Ariaramnes, had divided their father's lands between them, and their own sons, including Cambyses I, now ruled over adjacent Persian kingdoms as Median vassals. Eager to increase his own prestige at his cousin's expense, Cambyses jumped at the chance to marry the daughter of Astyages. Bullet dodged? Not hardly. 
In 576 BC, when Astyages learned his daughter was pregnant, he dreamt of a vine emerging from between her legs that grew until all of Asia was in its shade. Well, damn, that one's pretty straightforward. Nothing for it but to dispatch one of your most trusted generals and kinsmen, one Harpagus in this case, to, you know, take care of things down south. Riding quickly to Anshan, Harpagus sees the newborn Cyrus II on Astyages' authority and carried him off to the mountains to die of exposure. But at the moment of the act, Harpagus faltered and instead left the infant Cyrus to be raised by a local shepherd. Anyone else getting the Moses, Sargon, Romulus, Superman vibe? If so, there's good reason. Cyrus is often credited as having the greatest number of character traits associated with a great leader of any person in history, including factors such as having his destiny prophesied and having his royal identity concealed during the course of a humble upbringing. Meanwhile, Astyages, having believed Harpagus's lie about killing the child, learned years later that Cyrus was still alive. Hiding his fury beneath a veneer of calm, Astyages invited his general to a feast, at which the main course served was the dismembered body of Harpagus's own son. No slouch in the steely resolve department himself, mercy toward the infant Cyrus notwithstanding, Harpagus silently gathered up the pieces of his son and carried them away for burial. So, we're all cool then? Advised by his soothsayers that Cyrus was no longer a threat, Astyages had the boy return to his royal parents in Anshan. In 559 BC, at the age of 17, but already remarkable for both his nobility of character and strength of command, the young Cyrus succeeded his aged father as king of Anshan. He spent the next few years uniting the two Persian kingdoms under his leadership and extending control over the Median tribes living to the north of his kingdom. In 553 BC, with his star clearly on the rise, Cyrus was contacted by the Babylonian king Nabonidus. Seeing the Persians as the true heirs of the Elamites, on whom the Babylonians had often relied, Nabonidus asked whether Cyrus might help him free the northern city of Haran from the iron grip of the Medes. Judging himself and his people ready to enter the great game of Mesopotamian power politics, Cyrus agreed to grant Nabonidus Persian aid. Upon hearing of this outrage, Astyages immediately declared war on his rebellious southern vassal. Just like that, the spark had been struck, and the resulting fire would soon engulf the entire Near East. While both the Persians and Medes had well-deserved reputations as fearsome warriors, Astyages clearly had the numbers on his side. Riding south from Ecbatana at the head of an enormous host, with boundless confidence in both his own military skills and the loyalty of his army, Astyages attended to put a final end to the dark dreams that had plagued his decades in power. Riding out from Anshan to meet him, Cyrus intended to both fulfill his destiny and revenge himself upon the grandfather who had once called for his death. For the next three years, war engulfed the Zagros. Under Cyrus's able leadership, the Persians managed to defend their lands against the ferocious Median onslaught. 
In one instance, when all seemed lost, their women took to the battlefield to inspire their warriors to redouble their efforts. But the cold calculus of troop numbers and imperial wealth was beginning to tell, and Astyages could feel the news tightening. A few more months, weeks, days, and final victory would be his. Unfortunately, prophecies often have a way of trumping even the most careful calculations. As it turned out, the instrument for Astyages' undoing had been right there beside him the entire time. Loyal, faithful, trustworthy. The noble Median general Harpagus had continued to display all these qualities to his king, and eventually been rewarded with command of the army. Meanwhile, just below the surface, his heart had continued to burn with a fierce hatred over the murder and mutilation of his son. Unknown to Astyages, he'd maintained close correspondence with Cyrus ever since the boy had returned to Anshan. Using his position as both army commander and most prominent of the clan chiefs, Harpagus had been working behind the scenes to undermine his king's authority with the Median tribes. He accomplished this by both exacerbating their fears of Astyages' absolute rule and holding up Cyrus and the Persians as the living embodiment of ancient Aryan traditions. It was a convincing pitch, one that grew more so as the war raged on and the legends of Persian bravery, skill, and fierce independence spread across the Zagros. In 550 BC, as a major battle was shaping up at Pasargidae, Harpagus decided to spring his final trap. In mid-battle, the general openly defected to Cyrus and ordered his soldiers to take Astyages captive. Just like that, the war was over, and Cyrus found himself king of Persia, king of Media, and king of northern Mesopotamia, all in one bold and treacherous stroke. Just as this kind of rapid and incalculable success would soon come to define the new king, so would what happened next. Astyages was brought before the king in Anshan, no doubt envisioning a fate for himself similar to the cruel plans he'd nurtured for a defeated Cyrus, but already displaying the intelligence and grace that would alloy his legend, Cyrus instead sent the king off into comfortable retirement. Of course, this was not pure altruism. Having won only some of the Median tribes over to his side, he had no desire to antagonize those still sympathetic to the old king. Similarly, the treasures of Ekbatana were relocated to Anshan, but the Median capital and local nobility were spared any further repercussions from the transition of power. In fact, Ekbatana, well-sighted and temperate, would become the summer capital of Cyrus's budding Persian Empire. In the West, news of the Median overthrow was received with justified astonishment. Perhaps only one ruler had foreseen the dim outline of what was to come. Nabonidus had moved to the Tama Oasis a year after war had broken out in the Zagros. Had the king already gained some sense of the true threat the ascendant Persians might pose to Babylonia and the entire Near East? If so, what powers existed that might withstand the coming storm? The Lydians were strong allies, but lay far to the north, across miles of territory once claimed by the Medes. Egypt remained under the rule of Amos II, whom the Babylonians had made an implacable foe. 
However, in addition to its Temple of Sin, the Tama Oasis lay at the intersection of several important Arab trade routes, including some running westward to the Mediterranean. The Arabs were also renowned for both their fighting skills and their fabulous wealth. Perhaps it was through an Arab alliance that Nabonidus sought to build a southern firewall against Persian ambitions, and, in a worst-case scenario, secure alternate routes for Babylonian access to the sea. During the decade that Nabonidus would remain in Tema, his dread growing with each new rumor of Persian victory, the last king of Babylon certainly had ample time to meditate upon the grim prophecies buried in the myth of Ira Nergal. The splendor of the sun I will cut off. I will cover the moon in the night. I will decimate the land and count it as ruin. The cities will I destroy and turn them to wilderness. Next episode, we'll head back west and dispense with the heavy-handed foreshadowing as Athens finally gets her first tyrant. And he's really, really not that bad. Actually, Pisistratus is a pretty great guy who does a lot of really great things for the city. His sons, however, will be another story. We'll discuss the reign and numerous reforms of the Roman king Servius Tullius, and we'll watch as King Croesus of Lydia allies himself with Babylon, Egypt, and Sparta to challenge the upstart Persian Empire on the banks of the Hollis River. All this next time on The Ancient World.